Before we begin today's episode of the Modern Law Library, we'd like to welcome our new sponsor, Posh Virtual Receptionists. Welcome to the Modern Law Library. I'm your host, Lee Rawls, and today I'm joined by Kim Whaley, author of the new book, How to Think Like a Lawyer and Why. Kim, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Lee, for having me. So happy to be here. So, Kim, you have written three books, and your newest one, How to Think Like a Lawyer and Why, is a follow-up to what you need to know about voting and why, and how to read the Constitution and why. So I love that you're out there explaining things that I hope we would know from civics, but we don't always. What made you focus on this as your mission, almost, uh, to communicate with the public about the law, voting rights, and then in this book, how you think like a lawyer? Well, it really started early in the Trump administration when I was reading a piece in the New York Times that just sort of made an off-the-cuff statement that the pardon power, the president's power, pardon power is unlimited. And that prompted me to write my first op-ed that sort of pointed out that, you know, there isn't really any unlimited power in the Constitution that is the president in theory couldn't pardon only people with, you know, or Caucasian, for example, on that basis and evade a constitutional challenge. I'm not saying it would, it would, it would survive, but to say there's anything unlimited in the constitution, I said, well, maybe we need to clarify that. So I I wrote my first op-ed in the Baltimore Sun. And then frankly, Lee, after having taught sort of separation of powers type classes for over a decade, these issues were sort of ripping from the headlines in the Trump administration over and over and over again. And so I started writing more and then I got picked up on radio and then I got picked up on television. And I had been, I'm under contract with Cambridge to write a very scholarly book about outsourcing of government power and whether the constitution applies to that and realized that I found myself writing a different book. I was literally typing through my fingers a different book. And it was my first book on the Constitution, realizing that civic literacy is really a problem in this country. Stunning numbers, a third of Americans who in 2015 couldn't name the three branches of government and 10% of recent college grads who thought Judge Judy was on the United States Supreme Court. Those numbers actually have creeped up um, in terms of constitutional literacy more more recently, but but it still is it still is a problem and and you know the key the key word in the title of all of my books or words is the and why part the and why if you understand the why you can understand the what so even in the way i think civics is is taught and i have children so you know i've experienced that to some degree it's content based memorize this memorize that so so really the books are designed so that people can understand why we have a separation of powers. Why people say no more kings? What does it mean? And why do we have a politician? Politicians accountable. Uh, And, you know, so the book sort of walks people through the constitution from a very common sense standpoint, right? So, you know, you, you might own a restaurant and hire the best people possible with tremendous integrity but you still have rules and procedures. And if they violate those, you're going to fire them and find someone else because you need to have the restaurant stay open, right? And the government's exactly the same way. Finish book number one, 
then, you know, frankly, it seems like I should know this as a law professor, but it really, really hit home in my mind that the core heartbeat of the Constitution is voting and that it's all about issuing tickets for speeding, right? If 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 there's a speed limit out there you're and there's no ticket for, for blowing through it, we all have had that experience where we'll just drive right you know, 10 miles over or 15 miles over because you know it, no one will notice. But once there's a camera in the bushes, people slow down and the camera in the bushes for politicians is the ballot box. So that was, that was number two. And it frankly also stunned me that there's no affirmative right to vote in the constitution, which we can talk about. I think that's a huge problem and why um, we're having so many problems across the country with voting rights. But then when, when I finished that book and we had sort of all the challenges with COVID around access to the ballot box and, and then, of course, the big lie about uh, a fraudulent election when there's very little fraud and then the January 6th insurrection, you know, the, the next phase in my thinking on this, frankly, as a scholar, is that, you know, a lot of our problems are due to, to polarization and this team mentality, our way of thinking in a team you know, backing up our team. I'm on team blue, I'm on team red. And whatever whatever the circumstances, I'm going to back my team. And lawyers think really differently, as as you know. And it takes weeks to disabuse students for one else of the notion that it's about finding the answer. Lawyers are about finding the questions. And once you find the questions, you have to identify relevant facts and you have to exhaust the arguments against you. Because if you don't, you're going to lose. And you also have to take into account policy, which we would call value systems. So that was this book. It's a long answer to your question. The new book, How to Think Like a Lawyer and Why, is a bid to get us back to respectful conversation that's based on verifiable information and and in a way that, un, that we understand that we're not going to all agree on everything all the time. And we're going to have to give some stuff up in order to live live in an amicable, realistic way going forward. Well, something you may find edifying as you and I have this conversation is that I am the daughter of two lawyers. So as I was reading your book, I'm like, this is some parts of this. I'm thinking to myself, this is why you got grilled after you got home at such and such a time. Or this is why when you were deciding where to go to college, everyone sat down and outlined an argument. And so that... Certainly, as I read the book, I was like, yeah, this is how at least the lawyers in my life. uh." (laughs) It does change how you think. It does absolutely change how you think. That's a cliche, but law school does that. And, you know, some of us take it a bit too far and cross-examine our our friends and family. Um, But it it, it makes you smarter, not in terms of your cognitive capacity, but in terms of looking for flaws in your position. And I realized with the third book, I mean, there's nothing out there for regular consumers and, you know, on the sort of Barnes and Noble, Amazon market that teaches people these skills that, you know, that people pay a lot of money for. And if you're ever really in trouble, you need to hire a lawyer. And of course you can't get a law degree from my book, but it does approach, it approaches problems in a different way. And, And to the earlier point, really the objective is, is to try to change the dialogue and let me just give one little anecdote, which really gave rise to the book. In the middle of the Trump presidency, I did a semester at a different law school. I teach at University of Baltimore, but I did a visiting semester at American University, Washington College of Law. Uh, and 
I was given a seminar that was called Democracy at Risk. So it was in the it was in the catalog as Democracy at Risk, but I could teach whatever I wanted. And I at that point I happened to be under contract with CBS News to cover Trump's first impeachment procedure, and I was on air with you know Nora O'Donnell and uh, others and. They also had Jonathan Turley on, who's a GW law professor who tends to be more conservative on the conservative end. And and we were in this posture where we would sort of debate what was happening in a very respectful way, of course, but I think that's how it was set up. And so so it was a very polarized time in the country. And I, I went into the classroom and brought those issues into the classroom I and mean, how this matters in the constitution. And the thing I did was I asked the students to come to class with every every class, having considered two points of view on whatever hot button issue we were talking about. Two, and I gave them some ideas as to where to find a thor, you know, reliable op-eds from, you know, legitimate, legitimate media outlets. And at the end of the semester, I did a sort of roundtable to talk about the experience and the students. It really stunned me. They said, this is the first time we have felt safe even in an academic setting, talking about some of these issues, because we're so afraid that we'll get labeled when we open our mouths and then it'll become people dug into their point of view. And that's what kind of opened my eyes to this idea that, that you know, it's a beautiful thing if we can listen to each other. And part of listening to each other is to have a framework for doing that and someone managing that. So that's really uh, again, lawyer, lawyers, you know, lawyers can be combative, but the the legal way of thinking is builds in, take into account what we call policy, which is why do we have the law to begin with? Why is murder banned? It, it's somewhere along the line, someone decided to make that law. Why? Because we value life. So there's a value embedded in the law. Why do we have speed limits? Well, because we value safety for pedestrians and we want to have, we want to have, you know, uh, an environment where we can get in the car and feel like there's not chaos that could, that could, you know, put us in the hospital. That's not the case in other parts of the world um, where people just drive however they want. And so those are two of the foundational fundamental tenets in the book. And then the last piece, as I mentioned earlier, is lawyers have to tell their clients news they don't want to hear. I can't do that for you. I'm not, we're not going to win that argument. Or if you've gone through a bad divorce and you're not going to get everything you feel you deserve, and maybe you do deserve. And so it's that tolerance for giving some things up for this for the broader good that I'm also trying to start a dialogue about or with this book. Well, let's get into the structure of this book. There are two different things that you break down into five parts. One is you're breaking into, I would say, dimensions of life. So chapters one through five go like this. Thinking like a lawyer at work, thinking like a lawyer in family life decisions, thinking like a lawyer in civic life, and then chapter four, thinking like a lawyer in healthcare decisions, chapter five, thinking like a lawyer in hiring a lawyer. I found it really interesting that you broke it down into those realms. So I'd love to hear about that. And after that, we can talk about your method, the BICAT method. But first of all, why these realms? Why did you choose these five different areas to concentrate on work, family life decisions, civic life, healthcare decisions, and hiring a lawyer. I tried, and of course, close work with my editor on this, uh, Sarah Nelson at Harper, who is, has been pivotal across the board with all these books. But the idea was, and as you know, from reading the beginning, I do a little bit of sort of psychological, you know, and, you know, 
scientific background on how we make decisions. And we've all been in that situation where we have to trust our instincts, where, you know, the fight or flight response that comes from the amygdala and we're flooded with with hormones that are there for a good reason to make sure we make really good decisions in the moment. And that can be of vital importance and, you know, in, in certain walks of life. But there are other times in our lives where decisions are much more nuanced and complicated and and they can feel very overwhelming. So so those those five areas, um, having gone through uh, a very difficult divorce, I really wanted to talk about family life because, you know, not only am I a lawyer, but I'm a mother and went through that. And it, it really feels, you feel flooded days on end and don't really know how to make sense of the chaos. So so that was the the family life. Thinking of a lawyer, like a lawyer at work, you know, that's one of the environments I think where particularly women, and I can't speak for all women, of course, but, you know, it's a, it can be a fraught, in, a fraught uh, moment to ask for a raise. I mean, women don't get equal pay for equal work. And I think um, that's built into our structure and our social contract for, for worse. I wouldn't say it all for better. Um, but how do you do that um, in a way that that is coherent and takes the emotion out of it? Civic life, it kind of that's that's off of my last book. I just you know I could I could have done the whole book about politics and voting and how do you why it matters to to care about our democracy and how to think about political issues and you know how to have the conversation around the Thanksgiving table with people that don't agree with you around these really difficult issues. But sort of try step back a little bit and say how how do you how do you make a decision as to if you want to be more involved. In, in how our civic world, including government, is functioning for you and your family? How do you, how do you even start that conversation for yourself? Healthcare, you mentioned, we'll talk about it. Uh, you know, it's not only so difficult in terms of coverage and, and the financial burden, but these are hard decisions. I mean, do you have the elective surgery? I mean, what, what do you, how do you decide about end of life decisions? You know, life like law and law like life is but rarely black and white. It's mostly gray and lawyers are brought in to bring some order to the chaos. And then, you know, the last piece is okay. You know, there's only so much you can do on your own, but how do you, uh, when, when do you pull the trigger and, and hire a lawyer? And most of us will have that at some point in our lives. We'll need one for a will or, you know, heaven forbid for our, if there was any criminal uh, sort of dust up or, you know, I mentioned a divorce or if you have a some kind of contract conflict with, with an employer or with somebody that you've hired, all of these things at some point, you might have to get professional legal counsel in. But the idea here is, okay, how do you even get to the point to decide to do that? And as you mentioned, I have this five-part test that, and I have examples and worksheets that you could just pull it out and walk through it at the end. And even if I, it doesn't produce the answer, it'll make you feel like you have a little more control over the process. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor. But when we return, I'll still be speaking with Kim Whaley about her book, How to Think Like a Lawyer and Why, and more specifically about the BICAT method, how to break down your decisions to help you make them. As a lawyer, ever wish you could be in two places at once? You could take a call when you're in court, capture a lead during a meeting. That's where Posh comes in. We're live virtual receptionists who answer and transfer your calls so you never miss an opportunity. And the Posh app lets you control when your receptionist steps in. So if you can't answer, Posh can. And if you've got it, Posh is just a tap away. With Posh, you can save as much as 40% off your current service provider's rates. Start your free trial today at posh.com. 
Welcome back to the Modern Law Library. I'm here speaking with Kim Whaley, author of How to Think Like a Lawyer and Why. So let's dig into the BICAT method. Could you please share what the five steps of the BICAT method are? And then uh, maybe we can get into some hypotheticals and, and test this out. Sure. So BICAT stands for Break, Identify, Collect, Argue, and Tolerate. And the way the book is designed is that for each of those areas of life that we just talked about, I unveil the next step in the method. I do that first by explaining a legal case and how that step makes its way into law. And then I apply it to regular life. So step one, break a problem down. So lawyers will take, you might say something like, I just got fired from my job and I think it was discriminatory, for example. A, a lawyer will take something that generic, that big question, and break it down into particulars so that it, the, you know, what were the terms of your contract? What are the sort of personal characteristics that in your, that potentially could give rise to a, a violation of laws protecting people from arbitrary discrimination? What kind of damages did you, did you suffer? So a lawyer will go down automatically. I call this frameworks with my students. It's almost like a decision tree. Um, and that way you can take off chunks of chunks of the problem, address the chunks, and then get back to the big issue, right? So you're not going right for the money shot. Is it, should I win or should I not? Um, a lot of sub issues. And so that's, that's number one, the lawyer will automatically do that. Two, I have is identify your values and your aim. As I said, we call this in law policy. You know, why do we have, why do we have a ban on discrimination on the basis of race and gender, et cetera, in the Civil Rights Act? Before that, in the 1960s, it was perfectly legal for private parties to discriminate that way against employees, for example. Um, but we've decided as a society that's bad, right? So likewise, in the book, I said, you know, before you make a big decision, rather than going on instinct and, and emotion, identify for yourself what matters. So if it's a decision, okay, do I allow my child to get a nose piercing? You can write down before you have that debate or conversation with your child, what matters to you when it comes to, to raising a child? I mean, it, it could be that sort of physical appearance and adherence to traditional values in that way is absolutely optimal. The healthcare implications, maybe that's important, but maybe sort of you know, en enabling independence and decision-making for the child and maybe making some mistakes. You know, if you identify that early on, then I think the conversation with your, with your child is, is going to be a little more focused and perhaps less reactive. So that's number two. And we all have our values, Lee. We don't need lawyers to tell us that. Um, we don't write them down very often, but more broadly, it could be integrity, honesty, um, hard work, professionalism, whatever it is in your family. I mean, you know, mine are very particular with my kids. I, I, I lay them out. This is how we do things. We act with integrity, period, for example. Three is C. So we have break it down, identify your values and your aim. C is collect lots of knowledge. And the book talks about, does a little bit on how in the internet, you know, the, the internet age, how do you separate good information from bad information? You know, I was raised in an environment where, you know, we had to go to the, 
the public library and pull up, you know, the little three by five cards. It was hard to find information. That was the challenge, right? You'd start with an encyclopedia, but to get follow-up backup, you'd have to, you know, go to find a book and sometimes the book had to be borrowed. It was not easy. If you want original source materials, you had to go to a microfiche. Um, really difficult. Now it's the opposite. We're overwhelmed. So the skill we need to develop for the 20, you know, for the 21st century in part is how do you, how do you get at the best kinds of information. So I talk about that. But lawyers will, this is what we call discovery in the civil litigation process. Um, prosecutors do it um, in criminal in the criminal context. Just get a lot of information up on the table. Number four is argue both sides. This surprises students. They think, they see TV, they're like, I'm going to argue for my client. But in order to argue for your client, you have to have outline the counter arguments. You have to know where the potholes are. Uh, and we're not really good at that in our culture lately. We're not, we're not so good at sort of slowing down and really thinking about what the other person is saying and, and the value in that and, and how, how it counteracts your own position. Lawyers have to do that or they'll lose in court because they'll get blindsided. And the last, the last one is tolerate. Tolerate the fact that people will, will disagree with your choice and that you might feel conflicted. Lawyers have to give their clients bad information. You know, we're never, we're not going to get that dollar figure for you, even if we win across the board. Or, you know, we have really strong arguments, but this judge, it, it can be a little fickle. It's hard to predict, you know, and you know, any lawyer will tell you juries do different things than you expect. Um, so, so lawyers understand they're not going to win 100%. And they might lose and they might lose even the, if the merits of their case mean they should have won. That That's baked into the profession. But as I talk about in the book, if you've identified your values, even if you lose, you know, you don't get everything you want, you can still say, well, I adhered to what mattered to me. I adhered to my values. You know, you could say, listen, it's so important to me to just wrap up this litigation as quickly as possible and not drag it out. Imagine a divorce situation. For me, it's more important to move on than to get the house 100% for myself. If you've identified that early, then when you're sitting down in a negotiation with your, your partner, your former spouse, and you realize, okay, I really should have gotten a higher dollar figure, but guess what? This is going to wrap up today. You can walk away feeling like you had a win, even though you might not have gotten everything you wanted. And the argument I made in the book and the framework is, you know, let, let's do this on a step-by-step -step basis. Uh, and at the end of the day, you can feel better about your decision because it was methodical, it was thought out, it was based on facts, it adhered to your own value system. So that's how I got the, the five-step method. You didn't address the COVID-19 pandemic super directly in your book, but I certainly thought about all of the incredibly fraught decisions we've all been called upon to make in the past two years. Everything from you know, are we going to get together for Thanksgiving to should I send my child to school this year? Should I wait in hopes that, you know, maybe next year it won't be remote or so many areas in our life where, you know, most of us are not experts in epidemiology and infectious disease. And I think many people have felt very unprepared to make some of these decisions. You and I are speaking on February 17th in 2022, and one of the conversations we've been having nationally has been about masking in schools. And so I thought that might be an opportunity for us to take a look at, you know, how, let's say you're a parent, you're deciding, 
would I send my child to a school that doesn't require masking? Or, you know, do I take masking into account when I think about schooling? How would you suggest a parent, and, you know, you certainly are a parent, sit down and start thinking about school in the era of COVID? That's a great question. And so, you know, you're putting me on the spot, which I'm delighted to do, right? I haven't, <laughs> I haven't actually applied my bycut method to this question. So let's see if it works, right? Right. So, so let me just say, you know, back to the reason I wrote the book, one way of doing that, of answering that, and I'm not, I can't, I'm not suggesting people did this, but one way of answering that, that we see in other walks of life is saying, oh, well, this political party says to do this with masks, that political party says to do that with masks, I'm going to go with my team, right? And once I go with my team, I'm invested in the outcome, you know, go Mets or whatever, that's my team. And I'm going to cling to that, you know, I'm going to hang on to that. I mean, cling isn't a great word, but, I, but I'm invested in that because I believe in the team. That's one way to do it. And, you know, that can be helpful, but for something this important, I think it's not, right? It, because the people that are, you know, one way or the other making those those proclamations or urging people to act one way, wear a mask or not wear a mask, don't necessarily have the same considerations and values and concerns that you do for your family and your children. Politicians mm -hmm. care about their own power. I don't care where they are on the political spectrum. That's a little bit different from, you know, the education and the well-being of your child, right? So I would say step one is take a deep breath and don't go there. And I talk about in the book how, you know, it takes studies, science says it takes 20 to 30 minutes for the fight or flight hormones to rush out of your body. So if you're feeling agitated about something in a in decision, take a break, take literally walk around the block, do something for 30 minutes and come back. Same thing if you're having a, an argument with someone that's escalating, 30 minutes, come back. So if we say break the problem down, okay, so, the, so that would mean identify the various elements of the problem health, the health of my child, right? So don't want them to, to get COVID. The, the education of my child, well, don't want them to get COVID, but, you know, academically, you know, Zoom is not great. The, it can be academics and also the social development of my child. That, that might be three. I'll just use those as examples. So we've broken the problem down. It's not any longer, do we wear masks or not? It's health, education, social development. Number two, identify your values and your aim. Now, you're, you're the, so for health, for example, one parent might say, you know, they cannot get a virus no matter what because they have other preconditions. Or it can be, listen, I, I've just, I've worked so hard for my child's health. You know, I'm really careful about it. It's something that really matters to me. I, I'm very careful about the diet. They take vitamins. I'm, you know, buckle up seatbelts, wear helmets, you know, in a stroller, whatever it is, right? That's so important to me and my family. Totally respect that. But you can put that down, you know, longevity, um, social, so, so something like social development. What matters to you there? Independence, um, having a lot of friends, whatever it is. You could break that down. And then I say in the book, circle the one that matters to you the most. Just, just circle it. I mean, for me, for my children, you know, it is the overwhelming value is they need to act with integrity. And number two, as a parent, I feel like my job is to launch them into adulthood. And sometimes that means they have to, they have to take some risks. That's just me personally, right? But another value could be, but I also want to respect the community. That's important to me because I live in it. So that's number two. 
Three is collect not lots of knowledge, okay? And just to break in, I, I love that what you're showing as you break these down is you're not trying to get everyone to get to one singular answer. You're showing them how they can make an answer that makes sense for their individual circumstances. Exactly, exactly. And that's empowering, right? Just like it's empowering to belong to a team, I'm offering a different way of empowering, which is, which is a skill for breaking something down for yourself. And then you might end up on the same team at the end. But mm-hmm. it's, it's, the power is in your own knowledge and your own skill set to do that for yourself rather than glomming on or joining a team, which sometimes is great. Um, but absolutely, I, I don't, whatever the outcome is, I don't have a, I don't have a personal view, um, but I do have a personal view on empowering people to make decisions for themselves, collect lots of knowledge. I mean, you mentioned people don't know what to, to believe. So I talk about in the book, right? I mean, you want to look to sources, what, the source of information, what's their, what, what are they base it on? And you know, if it's a medical study, you can, the beauty of the internet age, you can pull up the medical study. I talk about in the book. Get, get the original source yourself and read it. Um, don't think, listen to Kim Whaley on CNN talking about an indictment. Read it. You can get that now. It's great, right? Put mm-hmm. all of that information up on the table. And then I also talk about how to make sure it's verified and valid, valid information. I mean, when you're talking about healthcare, you really, you know, this is why we go get second opinions. You want good information when it comes to something that important, right? You don't want a dentist doing heart surgery. You just, you know, we, we can agree on some limitations around that. Four is argue both sides. This is your typical pros and cons list, but now you're doing it in a much more informed way. You go back to how you've broken the problem down and and you identify for yourself, okay, here are all the reasons to send my kid to a place where masks are mandatory. And, you know, it might turn out that it's because you really want them in a social environment and you want them in the classroom with professionals. That's more important to you than maybe you believe you know, from a sort of a political standpoint that government should be making those decisions. Maybe you do. Maybe that's one of your values. Maybe that's one of the elements of breaking it down, but you've decided, okay, that's fine. But, but I really, really, what matters to me the most is that my kid get around other kids. So you might argue both sides there. And then the last one, number five is tolerate that you, people will disagree with your choice and you might feel conflicted. You're going to have to give some stuff up. Whatever you broke down in number one, there's, you're going to have to make some compromises, but you're doing it in a very methodical way. You're doing it in eyes wide open way with information that matters, that is good information and having identified your value system. So as I said, in the end, say you're, the, you're a person that just really, really has a problem with public education. You, already, you always have with public school education. You really want to be primarily responsible for, for your children's education. That might require sacrifices on your part. You've got to get up to speed on you know, algebra, not my thing anymore, right? You might have to cut back in other parts of your life because you've decided um, you just don't really want the school making these decisions for you. So you're going to have to give some other stuff up and you might, you might have people judge you. Okay. Or likewise, you might be in an environment where, you know, your friends and family are really against any type of masking or vaccines. And you've decided for your own family, listen, I value my child being in, in, a, in, in the educational setting. And so if you can say to yourself, listen, that's my value. So people can be mad at me, but, I, but I know for myself based on what happened under step one, two, that this is what matters to me. So I can live with this decision. 
There you go. Boom. We just did it in real real time. We sure did. Kim, thank you so much for joining us and talking through the BICAP method. If people want to go and pick up your book and read it for themselves and uh, there are some good diagrams in there. I, I really do suggest you you pick up a copy, but where can they do that? I have a website, www.kimwhaley.com, but it, W-E-H-L-E, and I, and I tweet at Kim Whaley, and I have an Instagram account at Kim Whaley. I do a, so a, a show called Simple Politics where I break down issues that are complicated um, across the board. But it can really, honestly, Lee, you can buy it anywhere. You can get it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble. It's, it's all over the place. If you just type in W-E-H-L-E, there aren't many of us, and a lot of options will come up for you. Or you could buy your local book, bookstore, which I'm all about. Great. And this is the meanest possible question to ask someone whose book just came out. Uh, what will be yesterday when people are listening to this? Uh, what's your next project? It's actually not such a mean question. I have another <laughs> one in the works <laughs> already. It's not. It's with a different publisher, but it's going to be about what started this whole journey, the pardon power, the, the president's pardon power. It's kind of this black hole that is considered sort of, uh, you know, unlimited. And I break it down. It's going to be really interesting. Talk about the Bible. Talk about, you know, the origins of it in common law England and and how it's translated um, into popular culture and into the law today. So it's it's super fun. It's going to be, you know, the coffee table book for people to to start, again, owning this issue for themselves and making their own determination when the pardon pardons come around in, inevitably at the end of every presidency. And even more so, uh, governors do it. Governors do it. Or more people are in state and local prisons than in federal prison. And so it's much misunderstood. So that's the next project. It's, it's already in the works. <laughs> I'll look forward to that one for sure. And thank you again to Kim Whaley, author of the book, How to Think Like a Lawyer and Why. And thank you to my listeners. If you've enjoyed this episode of the Modern Law Library, please rate, review, and subscribe in your favorite podcast listening service. And if you've read a book that you'd like me to check out, you can always email me at books at abajournal.com.